You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. All right, if I can call you back, we're going to get started. You can find your seats on the ground or in a chair. If you need a printed Bible, there's one on the back. There's coffee in the back if you want to get up and get another cup of coffee, if you haven't already. From Peugeotto this morning, it's really good. I've had too many cups already this morning. Nobody is sitting next to this heater right here. You get the, both the sun and the heater if you need to move at any point. Feel free to do that. If I don't know you, my name is Charlie. I'm one of the pastors here with Missio de Tempe. We are a congregation that's a family with two other congregations in the valley here, one in Mesa, Missio Mesa, and then also in Missio Phoenix. And really what we're trying to do as a church is live in God's story as a family of servant ambassadors for the good of our cities. And so we do that primarily through missional communities and then gathering here on Sundays together as a church to be equipped and nourished in God's word and in God's story. I want to start today with uh, a story of a personal hero of mine. And trust me, I'm not just fanboying to start today, but it will, it will actually, I think, hopefully be meaningful and helpful for this series that we're in. You could argue that in the 20th century, the greatest spiritual writer was Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest. Uh, he wrote a number of books. He taught at the most prestigious universities, Yale, Harvard, Duke. And in the 70s, uh, for much of that decade, as he taught at Yale, he was really the expert in com combining, which was now pretty normal, psychology and spiritual formation. He took this big vision of psychology and this big vision of spiritual formation and blended the two together. Now, if you were to spend time with him in the 1970s, which is crazy, that's like, what, 50 years ago? And in the midst of what was happening in the 70s and much of the cultural deconstruction and the rampant uh, individualism was taking over our culture, his vision of spiritual formation, he would say, I think, was very individualistic, privatized, that really what it means to be a Christian or to be spiritually formed is this relationship between me and Jesus. Now, in the 70s, his heart was starting to move in other ways where he was exposed to some theology and some different churches that were happening in Latin America. And so he spent six months at the end of the 1970s in Peru and Bolivia. And while he was there, he was exposed to some of the poorest of poor. Those that were at the mar ultimate margins of society. And he realized as he was spending time among the poor that his vision of spiritual formation, which we've been talking about all month, was malnourished. That this vision of a privatized, just me and Jesus spiritual formation wasn't enough to meet the needs and questions of those who were most poor in the world. That he needed a bigger vision of spiritual formation. Now, if you uh, have been around the last month, we've been talking a lot about spiritual formation, but even larger than that, this last five years, if you've been part of the evangelical world, spiritual formation has become like the buzzword. Everybody is talking about it, about practicing the way of Jesus. It's been really good. It's brought a lot of interesting, uh, I think, insights and questions for us to how do we actually follow Jesus in the modern world? But there's been this, I think, really interesting trend that's happened over the last five years 
that I think even Noun was experiencing in the 70s as his vision of spiritual formation. Uh, the, trend, the trend, I think, fits really well with this illustration I've been thinking about all week. Right near my house, I live off uh, rural and southern over here, there's this really uh, great worship place called the Spirit of Yoga spirit of yoga. Worshippers gather there every day during the week and on Sundays as well to encounter at least themselves and maybe some other uh, uh, transcendent experience or person. And they gather there and worship. They bring their mat. They lay it out. And I, as we walk by there, because there's a duck pond right there, just a key, uh, if you're looking for somewhere to spend some time in the city that's kind of cool, there's a duck pond behind there with a bunch of fish, and the fish have been overfed so much, they like almost, they almost swim onto the shore, basically, trying to get food from you. But as I was thinking about this picture of spiritual formation in our culture, I, I was thinking of this definition that Spirit of Yoga gives of what they're trying to do. This is their vision. And I'm not trying to just hate on yoga, right? It's really good. It says, we thrive to be a safe sanctuary to those who seek yoga as a path to self-care, self-healing, and self-realization. Here's my fear. Our vision of spiritual formation of being formed by God sounds and is something very similar to this vision. We could just change the words. We thrive to be a church as a church, a safe sanctuary to those who seek spiritual disciplines as a path to self-care, self-healing, and self-realization. That maybe this morning, this is my this is my hope for us. Maybe our vision of spiritual formation has been doing this whole month of it, being formed by God together. Maybe it's been more shaped by the spirit of yoga than the spirit of Jesus and what he's doing in the gospels. And that's the question I think Henry Nouwen was wrestling with as he was exposed to those at the margins and seeing that he had a malnourished vision of maybe what it means to follow Jesus in our world. So we've been talking about this phrase all month, being formed by God together. And then today, the last part of the phrase, for the sake of others. What does it mean to be formed for the sake of others. If you have a Bible, could you open it? We're in the same passage we've been in all week or all month. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. What does it look like for us to be formed for the sake of others? For the sake of others. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. It says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Most people, when they look at this passage, you just stop right there. Like, hey, this is one sermon, and then the next sermon will be the next passage. But one theologian, Chris Wright, he does a really good job of showcasing that these two passages actually belong together. Because look at verse 11. It says, in light of this identity of who you are, in light of the ways you've been formed by God together as his people, he says, dear friends, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans 
gosh, I hate using that word. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in a culture that cares a lot about language. I feel like it's a bad word. But basically, all he's trying to say is those who are outside the community of faith. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We've been looking at this passage this whole month. And I think what we see here is a pattern that God has done all throughout his story. God is in the business of setting aside a particular people or individual always for something greater than themselves. If you read through the story of scripture, you see Abraham set aside blessed, but for, so he could be a blessing to others. Egypt, God's people were freed from Pharaoh. They're brought to the wilderness. And that's where we get this, this phrase here, royal priesthood. They're brought to the wilderness, not for themselves, but for the nations to see what God is like. And then in the prophets, as you read later on in the, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, there's this passage in, or this phrase that happens over and over again, that Israel, as God's people, are to be a light to the nations. They're not to exist for themselves, but for the sake of others. Hey, this is who you are, those first couple of verses. Now, in light of that, live in this way. I love that there's a picture here of both declaring. It says, declare the praises. So we declare with our lips what God is like to our neighbors, to our world. But also it says, live such good lives to demonstrate, to showcase who God is by the lives that we live, that people would peer into our lives and they'd get a physical representation of who God is like and what he does in his world. And this isn't for us to create this like community separated from the world, but it says live among, like in the midst, in the cities that you're in, the neighborhoods that God has put you, the workplaces he sent you in, even if it's just sitting in your living room on a computer on Zoom. Where has God sent you to demonstrate, declare, and live among those he's called us to, to showcase what he's like? This is the vision. This is what God has given us as his people, to be a people formed by God together for the sake of others. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Stephanie, Sarah, and Sandy shared up here, which is really great. And I wish Stephanie was here this morning. I don't see her. But Stephanie, what she shared really, really striked me in a different way. Stephanie was sharing about her rhythms, and I had her share about Sabbath. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, let me, let me fill you in if you weren't. She shared about Sabbath, and she said, hey, for her, a paradigm shift has taken place where she's no longer primarily thinking of how to Sabbath for herself to rest, but how she can create space for Martin, her husband, to rest instead. Like, do you see how different that is? Not just the self-care, self-actualization, self-realization of me, but how can I then create space for the sake of others to experience rest too? I challenged us a couple weeks ago to orient our life around three rhythms this year, listening to God through scripture, encountering God through prayer, and enjoying God through Sabbath. Maybe those aren't your practices right now. Maybe they are. Maybe there's something else. But I'd love for you to turn to some people around you. We do this if you're new with us all the time, uh, where we try to learn from one another as much as you're learning from the person up front, because the Holy Spirit is in all of us, not just me or whoever's teaching up front. But I'd love for you to turn to the people around you and just do some reflection. When you think about your spiritual practices, prayer, scripture, fasting, sounds of solitude, Sabbath, whatever they are, how are they forming you for the sake of others? Or if they aren't, just to use this time of confession, like, hey, I don't actually know how my practice of scripture has formed me to love my neighbor better. But just do some reflection with the neighbor next to you. What are your practices that you're currently doing? And how are they forming you for the sake of someone else, not just for yourself? 
or maybe how could they be forming you if you feel like, ah, there's a disconnect for me. Ready, set, go. Let me call you back. I'm gonna send you right back into groups here in just a minute. But as you're processing with your neighbor, you can just stay sitting next to them if you'd like, because I'm gonna bring you right back in about three minutes. Or you can move all the way back and go back and forth. That's okay too. I don't know about you, but when I think about this question, it's really hard for me sometimes to name how what I'm currently doing in my personal practice is for the sake of neighbor. We live in such a thoroughly consumeristic, individualistic culture that everything is about how does this benefit me? Why is it so hard? Here's, I wanna give you three C's of what I think prevent us and hinder us, thanks Isaiah, hinder us from actually stepping towards others with our formation. The first one is this, we, these are idols, things that we worship. The first one is comfort. I, I wanna say something really strong and, and I'm gonna walk it back later when someone comes and emails me or, or says, or texts me about it. But in our culture now, any form of discomfort is almost a form of trauma being done to us. Like any sense of discomfort that we might feel becomes in a sense of trauma that, hey, that's, that, you're, you're triggering me in some way. I'm not actually gonna be uncomfortable at all. You can text me, email me later. Don't worry, I can nuance that for you. But comfort gets in the way of us actually stepping towards others. We're just too comfortable. And now discomfort, we just, we don't even want to touch that. We avoid it at all costs. That's the first one. It's a threat to our autonomy. The second one is this, uh, convenience. To step towards others is really inconvenient. I was thinking about this actually uh, this last week, uh, a couple of years ago before the pandemic, uh, Chris Gonzalez and I and a couple others helped move this, this wonderful old lady out of her house that she had, to, she had to get out of within the next day. And let's just say she had, she had a lot of things that we were trying to move out and we we're trying to figure out what stuff to keep, what stuff not to keep. And it was on a Saturday, I think, uh, a Saturday morning. And I remember thinking when Chris invited me to go like, gosh, I'm, I'm wasting a whole Saturday morning helping this lady who I don't even know who has all this stuff. I'm going to get, my hands are going to get all messed up from carrying all this furniture. Like this is really inconvenient. Like, I don't want to do that on my Saturday morning. And for a lot of us, when we think of being for the sake of others, we just want to try to schedule it in. And if it's not scheduled in, then forget it. We're not going to step towards somebody else because it's inconvenient. Does it line up with our schedules? becomes an idol that we worship at all costs, even at the expense of other. It might cost you a weekend. It might cost you money in some form or way, resources. That's the second one, comfort and convenience. The third one is capacity, capacity. We've done a lot of good work in our culture around setting good boundaries. Hey, we wanna be people that set good boundaries and that's really good, really good. So don't hear me say that we shouldn't set good boundaries. However, I think often setting good boundaries becomes an excuse we use to actually step towards someone else. And here's a tricky thing about capacity. At least this is my experience. Capacity is really funny because in every season you have different amount of capacity. Like I remember when I was in college, I thought I was at max capacity taking 18 credit units. I wasn't even working a job, but I was at max capacity. Then you get out of college, you have a full-time job. I'm at max capacity. I can't take on anything more working 40 hours a week. And then you get married. Oh my gosh, I am at max capacity. I have all this relationship. I have the relationship I have to tend to now and I have to work. 
oh, you have a kid. Holy cow, I'm at max capacity. How do people do it? They have a kid. They have to work. They have a, they have a marriage they have to attend to. They have, do they even have friends outside? How do, max capacity. Oh, then you got two kids. Holy cow. Now you really don't do anything else. Like you literally have two kids or two. Like you're at max capacity. Try having three kids. Oh, my gosh, three kids. I'm at max capacity. I can't take on anything else. Well, what's changed between having three kids and then when I was in college taking 18 units? I've just grown in my capacity. You meet the moment, right? You meet the moment. The only way to grow your capacity is to actually challenge it in some ways. Yes, yeah, set good boundaries. That's really good. But also, if we're going to grow as a people in capacity, sometimes it means, uh, in a sense, stepping over those boundaries, not just because we're trying to be burned out or trying not to have, uh, trying to be reckless with our lives, but for the sake of others. Turn the people around you again. Comfort, convenience, and capacity. Which one for you is the greatest idol that hinders you from stepping towards others, to be for the sake of others in our formation. Ready, set, go. (laughs) Whether you struggle with comfort as an idol that you orient your life around, whether it's convenience, ah, it's gotta be in the schedule or not, I won't get to it. Or whether it's your capacity, gosh, I'm maxed out. I'm maxed out. I think the simple invitation this year to you from Jesus is what does it look like to really be formed by God together, but for the sake of others? To identify what that idol is, to confess it, and then ask in dependency on the spirit, God, would you help me live this year for the sake of others, not just for myself? Would my formation this year be really for others, not just for myself? God, I don't know how to do that. I'm driven by comfort, convenience, or capacity. And so I'm exposing that to you so that you might take that aisle and crush it and give me a better way forward. As you think about living for the sake of others this year, I want to recover for us something that often we overlook within the context of our church. Our church is big on thinking through, hey, we're going to form these communities. They're going to live as a family, live as servants, and live as ambassadors or missionaries. And these communities are gonna have a mission. They're gonna have something they're gonna orient their lives around, whether serving homeless folks or a soccer team or creating a CrossFit gym to serve neighbors and friends. We're really good at that, I think. But what can happen often as we look towards those things as a shared mission, we forget the everyday spaces that God has placed us in. And there's really, I think, five spaces that God places us in that I want you to reimagine this year your role as being for the sake of others in those spaces. The first space is your neighborhood. Do you know the names and the stories of people that live on your street? Have neighbors been in your home before this last couple of years? Probably because of COVID, maybe not. How could you re-enter into that sphere? The second second face is the... Even when your neighbors are hard to love, how do you step towards them? My son would be panicking right now. Thankfully, he's in kids. You have your neighborhood. The second place uh, that to reimagine is your work, both how you do your work and who you work with is a place that God has called you to be a faithful presence in. Do you know the names and the stories of your coworkers? How do you do your work? Do you do it with excellence? Showcasing the goodness of God through how you do your vocation. The third thing is your third space as you spend time in. It could be a coffee shop. 
a grocery store that you are there regularly, um, a restaurant that you frequent? How has God sent you into those spaces to be a faithful presence? Do you know the name of the cashier at your grocery store that you're there every week or every couple of weeks? The fourth space being not just only those three, but your family and friends. Many of us have family and friends who do not know Jesus that we see all the time, not just for holidays, but regularly where they're hanging out with their kids or are going over for dinner. How have you been intentional in that space? And the last space where Jesus spent a lot of his time is among the least, the lost, and the lonely. Who in your city fit into that category? And how might you step towards them as a faithful presence this year? Those five spaces to re-recover the everyday stuff of life as God's missionary people for the sake of others. Walter Brueggemann has this quote. We read it during Advent, but I think it's so fitting, hopefully, for this year as we uh, begin to continue to journey through the pandemic, but in many ways making a shift from emergency mode to maintenance of living just in the midst of all the craziness. He says this, what would it look like for us to embody this? Imagine a whole company of believers rethinking their lives, redeploying their energy, reassessing their purposes. The path is to love God, not party, not ideology, not pet project, but God's will for steadfast love that is not deterred by fear and anxiety. The path is to love neighbor face to face, to love neighbor in community action, to love neighbor in systemic arrangements and imaginative policies. What would it look like for us to be a people to reimagine this year what it is to live for the sake of others? Let's just sit in silence for one minute. As you think about those five spaces, your neighborhood, your work, third spaces, family and friends, and the least, the lost and lonely, what is one of those spaces that you have overlooked that God has placed you in that you might reimagine this year of living for the sake of others in that space? Let's sit in silence for the next minute and see if the Spirit brings one of those places to mind. of months ago on October 6th we got to welcome our our third third baby boy into the world that night and as new parents to a third kid you were with the whole wave of emotions of uh, just experience of birth and then sleeping in a hospital bed trying to care for your new child in the morning that next day uh, the the um, the pediatrician came in and he was spending a really long time looking at our son. And everyone had been asking us the last day, like, what's his name, what's his name, what's his name? And we're like, I don't know, we have like three finalists, but we haven't decided yet. We're being those parents. He'll just be nameless for the next couple of days, I guess. Uh, what's his name, what's his name, what's his name? We don't know. The next day the pediatrician comes in, he takes this really long look at our son and like taking way, way longer than typical. And he just has a simple question. He says, did you guys do any genetic testing for uh, for your son before he was born. And we said, no, he, he ha we haven't. Um, and then he's like, hey, I'd like to, I would like to do some genetic testing because he has a lot of the markers of Down syndrome. And in that moment, he just, then he just walks out of the room. He's like, drop the question and then walks out. In that moment, you're like, you have a lot of different emotions. You're like, I don't, you're getting this news, a potential news. And you're trying to process all the different things that come with it, both the joys and the sorrows. And for the next three hours, uh, we just sat there kind of in silence, Keaton and I. And, and this is what Keaton is really good at. 
is she's really good at re-narrating moments in the midst of it. And she just began re-narrating for us all the ways that God has prepared us for this moment of both the joys and the sorrows that are to come. Renaring how God has been preparing us, growing our capacity, moving us out of comfort, getting us out of our convenience so that we might be a people of love, to live really for the sake of others. There's this little phrase in John 21 where Peter is reinstated by Jesus. And he, for three times, Jesus says, do you love me? And, Jesus, and Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he says this, when you were young, you used to go to the places you wanted to go and do the things that you wanted to do. But when you're old, someone else will dress you and you will be led where you would rather not go. Henry Nouwen says, you could define discipleship of living for the sake of others, of being led where you would rather not go because of your comfort, convenience, and capacity. But the beauty is where you would be led where you'd rather not go is that you're met with the tangible presence of Jesus. That Jesus is the good shepherd who comes into the midst of your darkest valley, your deepest point of pain, not just to be with you, but to bring you joy as well. To prepare you for whatever comes next. The promise, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I'm so thankful that we know a king who did not come to earth to be on this project of self-actualization or self-realization, but he came in his self-giving, in his in a, in a self-giving, radical type of love, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so every week as we live for the sake of others, we're reminded that we follow the pattern of our king. The pattern of our king that embody what it means to live for others by giving his life and resurrecting from the grave so that we might have new life and we might be sent out and nourish us as people to live and to go to places we would rather not go. Because in those places, Jesus meets us and he gives us joy in the midst of even the sorrows. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to the communion table. We come each week to the communion table to celebrate the risen King who has given us new life so that we might live truly for the sake of others. And even as the kids run over here and get to participate with us, we're reminded that all of us are invited to the table. All of us are welcome to experience the goodness and kindness of God. And so would you stand with me? I'm going to read what we read each week. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. We recite each week the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Would you recite it with me? And then would you come and receive from the King? Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Come and receive from the King. <laughs>